Wow, <laughs> that was a blessing, that song. Um, I'm going to begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you uh, for who you are this morning and who you've always been to us, Lord, no matter whether we can see it or whether we can't. Um, I thank you for every member of this congregation, Lord, who allows us to be able to see who you are and see your love in a greater light. And I pray you continue to bless them, Lord, and lead them and let them encourage each other as they have encouraged myself and my wife. And I pray that you would bless us to do the same to others as we go our separate ways, Lord. But at this moment, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me and let my thoughts be organized and just speak your words only in Jesus' name. Amen. I feel like there's so many things, so many things that I could share about today. Um, as I was trying to prepare the sermon, I, I, I had just pages and pages of, of things, you know, that I would want to share because it's like your last message. And I can see now why Paul sometimes had to preach until midnight. Remember when Eutychus fell out of the window? And then it said he continued on until the morning, actually. He continued praying. Why? Because he was departing the next day. He's like, I got to get everything off my chest that I can now that is going to encourage and is going to build up the body because I may not have another opportunity to ever see them again. And so as I'm feeling this, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, there's so many things that I could actually share. Do I share my, my testimony? Do I share uh, different things in the Bible? Do I share what I'm studying now? What is it that I share? And um, it actually got me to a point where I was a little bit scattered in my thinking. And so I wrote down everything and then I wasn't able to really organize it the way I wanted to. But um, but I believe that God is working because he's brought it down, I think, to um, what I think is the, the, the most important, where I can almost incorporate a little bit of everything. But um, I don't cry very easily, but um, like uh, today, I mean, just the things, thinking about the way that God has led me in my life um, and thinking about the impact that each and every one of you has had on my life, it's, um, it just shows me a greater picture of who God is. And, and, it's, and it's so amazing, just from the littlest things, um, something as simple as playing the guitar, listening to Michael, I'm thinking, um, I, I learned so much, you know, how to play the guitar. And I'm watching his progression, is just unbelievable. It, to me, it testifies of the goodness of God by using the talents that we actually have and watching God multiply them. It's, it's something that is just, it's so, it's so beautiful because it's saying that God says, yes, I want to give you good things. You know, I want you to be happy with the things that you can do well. Um, and when you use it for me, it's just going to go so much quicker, <laughs> actually. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be so much more of a rapid growth. Today, the title of the sermon is, is called, God Said, I Will Put Enmity. And so we're going to get to that, but you've got to stick with me because I'm going to be going around to a few different places here this morning. And so I need you to hang on board because we will get to the point by the end of it. I want to say happy Thanksgiving. Um, it hasn't really sunk in yet that this is the last Sabbath. It, it really, um, I think today it's starting to sink in and the emotions are starting to come out. But I am grateful for every single person. All of you have touched me and helped me to grow uh, in a way that you don't really even understand, actually. Um, it's amazing. Every single person who just opens up their heart and will share with me their real feelings, the things that they're struggling with, that, has what, that is what has caused me 
to actually grow more than anything because I start to realize that we are all the same. We're all struggling with the same things. In one way or another, it may come out in a different form, but in one way or another, we're all struggling with the same things. And this is why I believe that God wants us to be connected to each other. But Satan will do everything he possibly can, and he has done that in my life from the very beginning to actually want us to be separated. I'm sitting here as we're praying, and I'm feeling, I can feel everybody around us, even though my eyes are closed. And I feel, I say, as Carol mentioned, I've never felt a family like this ever in my entire life. Even though my family, I grew up with the whole Hawaiian side of my family and very family-oriented. We always came together every week. Um, and we would have big groups and we, we big get-togethers and we would have a good time and everybody would be happy. But everybody was, in a way, kind of pushing each other to stand out. You know, who can stand up the most? Who can actually outdo the next person? Who can get talked about the most, you know? Um, trying to, to, to put the focus on ourselves rather than actually putting the focus on others. And so this is why I say this family has been more of a family to me than, I, than anything I've ever experienced. I've had a lot of firsts happen in this, in this church alone. There's only two churches I've been a member of. I was baptized in Laguna Niguel Church in California, and then shortly after, I think not even a year, then moved over here to Hawaii and transferred my membership a little bit after that to Honoka. Um, but this church is the first time I've ever sang special music, ever sang special music in this church. And I listened to some of them, like, not too long ago, and I was like, wow, God has definitely grown me. <laughs> uh, the first time I've ever played guitar and sang at the same time, actually. I couldn't even do it before I got here. And, uh, and so the first time I ever played guitar and sang in, in, in church, especially. Um, first time I ever attended a prayer meeting in this church. First sermon I've ever preached. First church work bee I've ever been to. <laughs> it was a good experience. It was the first time teaching Sabbath school, leading prayer meeting, and this is also the first cakey story that I've ever told as well. Um, there's many different firsts that I've had in this church, and so, um, you know, with people mentioning, oh, don't forget us or always remember us, um, uh, that's not going to be an issue, actually. I think <laughs> the, the, the issue is going to be getting you out of my mind or, <laughs> or comparing every other church or every other, you know, to you guys. That's going to be the issue. And so... You don't have to worry about that. You will be on our hearts, both Carol and I, um, wherever we go, you know, wherever God sends us. And so, um, but I just look around and I feel so blessed by, by everybody, you know, and watching people grow um, and, and just realizing the, the, the power of God and the love that God actually has for us is just is unbelievable. My experience here in Hawaii has been, has been something that has been life, totally life-transforming, and I go back to Oregon a completely different person. I mean, 180 degrees, and I think that my family doesn't really realize it as much as they may begin to once we're actually there. Um, last time I was there, I was 20 years old, so about nine years ago, and close to 10 years ago, actually, and um, and you know, I left there. This is that was the other thing I was going to mention. This is going to be this is the hardest group that I've ever had to leave. Actually, even leaving my family, my entire family up in Oregon, moving down to California, was not as hard as leaving every one of you to go up to Oregon. Why? Because I was at that time when I left Oregon, I was actually very hardened in my heart. I actually had an argument um, shortly before with my dad, where we almost got into a, um, a physical confrontation, and. 
I was so fed up with everything I was having to go through up there in Oregon, and my heart was so hardened that I just wanted to get away. And so I left, and I didn't even look back, didn't think twice about it, and God actually used that experience to speak to me, but and it probably wasn't the best circumstances that I left from. And so it wasn't hard. And then when I moved to Hawaii from California, I didn't have any substantial friends because everybody is just, you know, fake wherever you go. If you're not in the church, everybody just, you know, your acquaintances, maybe you go surfing together, maybe you do something you like to do together. But it's not a bond of actually opening your heart to somebody and speaking about real life issues. But life here in Hawaii, since God has, has, has been touching my life through each one of you, has been um, uh, totally transformed and been very peaceful with inside and consistently peaceful. But, but this morning, I wanted to share with you a little bit about how my life wasn't always consistently peaceful, actually. I grew up a very shy person. I think I've mentioned that a few times. And I had actually really poor social skills. And so every single person, um, when they're growing up, they want to have friends. You look around, you say, I want to play with that person, or I want to play with that person, you know, when you're little. I want to talk to them. I want to get to know them. How do I do that? I'm not really sure. And so everybody comes up with maybe their own way of how they can actually accomplish that. And I had really poor social skills. Why? Because the example uh, from my family wasn't the greatest. And so communication wasn't, wasn't really there. And so I turned to what I knew I could make friends by, and I turned to my strengths. Certain people turn to their strengths, certain people turn to their weaknesses and try to get people to feel sorry for them, to love them, and to, to talk to them. But I turned to my strengths, which was um, my physical abilities, impressing others with the things that I could actually do. And so I turned to sports and things like Everything, water skiing, football, basketball, mainstream sports, little sports like ping pong, bowling, anything. There was like in my yearbook, I don't know how many people actually wrote when I graduated high school, they said, is there anything you can't do? Because there was every little thing, whether it was throwing darts, I would actually do it until I mastered it. So when I would just come around and play with somebody, it was like, they'd be like, wow, you're really good at that, you know? And it's like, uh, it was something that allowed... Um, people to come to me because I didn't know how to go to them. And so I was trying to draw everybody to me, but it was through my own pride and through the things that I could actually do. And this is why I believe that Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle because a rich man, somebody who is blessed, somebody who has a lot of things will get the things that our heart is yearning for, attention and love and admiration but it's coming in the wrong way. But if you cannot see that, you're going to be deceived your entire life. And I praise God that I was able to see that, but it took a lot of, a lot of hardships because I, w this, was, this was what I did and people, were able, people came to me. I had many friends. I went to a, um, a public high school that was, had over a thousand kids. Um, many kids knew who I was. They knew my name. They'd come up to me, say hi. They wanted to talk to me, hang out with me. And I didn't even know who they were, only because the ridiculous reason of playing football, you know, or, or, or dating the whatever, you know, most popular girl that, that the school thought or whatever. And it, everybody looked up to you like, oh, wow, he's so cool, you know, and, and he can do all these wonderful things. And, and all these things is what was deceiving me into thinking that I had what I was looking for. You see, we're all looking for that. We're all looking for love. And I said, some of us focus on our strengths and some of us focus on our weaknesses. They talk, we walk around talking about um, the things that we can't do, you know, and we, talk, we make fun of ourselves um, to try to get people to laugh uh, because then at least we feel some sort of acceptance. We feel like we're part of a group or something. Um, and everybody 
is looking for this acceptance and this love in some way or another. Can anyone else relate to this? Have you ever seen this in your own life, or are you even experiencing it now? Because it doesn't stop when you become a Christian, actually. It sometimes just transfers over into the church and transfers over into the things that you're doing within the church and the the abilities that you actually have. Maybe it's preaching, maybe it's a deacon, deaconess, maybe it's whatever, singing, you know. But are those things what is what's supposed to fill our life, supposed to give us our value? And I say, absolutely not. And that's what God is just ringing in my ear, speaking to me more and more, because I realized that um, even when I first came into this church, and even when I got back from Amazing Facts, um, I was priding myself in the things that I knew that I would be able to teach. Yes, I was humble in the fact that Jesus has, has done all these things in me, but I was, there was still a part of me where pride would come out, and I was trying and trying my hardest to put that pride away. You know, I say, ah, uh, I think in my heart, don't, don't clap. Don't, I don't want anybody to clap for me because why? Because it builds up my ego, you know, and I just want to suppress it. I don't want, to, I don't want uh, any sin in my life, try to put everything away. But I've realized through this experience that <laughs> it seems like so elementary what we should know from the beginning that God loves me even in that pride, even in those times, in our mistakes, even in the, 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 the ways that, the things that we hate about ourselves, God still loves me in that pride. And when we focus on that, when we actually truly see that, that's what transforms our heart. And that's when we start to realize that, oh, the, Jesus, the love that you had for me, it was despite what I was doing. And now I can truly actually look at somebody else and I can love them despite what they're doing. And that's the difference. Before, it's just looking at somebody saying, oh, they just don't know yet. You know, look, they just, once I tell them the truth, now they're going to want to keep it and now they're going to be happy just like me. But if they don't, well, there's, there's no hope for them, you know, because they're not following the truth that they actually know there's no hope for them. But God actually says, no, 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 no. Your love is to be consistent, you know. Your love is to be uh, ongoing. I'm constantly pursuing you, no matter what you're doing in your life. And this is what God has been revealing to me. The first 20 years of my life, I I spent pleasing myself, searching for the next emotional high through relationships, sports, partying. The only reason I didn't get heavier into drugs was because I was was vain. That's really what, what it comes down to. Because drinking and drugs, it's hard to actually stay physically fit, you know. And I was more concerned about having a six pack than having a six-pack, <laughs> you know, so, uh, but this was the only reason. I was still living a life of sin, which was trying to gain friends through, through, through loving, I guess, uh, pleasing myself anyway, and so the problem is I didn't really know, I didn't really know any better. I was only following what I felt like uh, everybody else was living in this world to do, you know, was just to, to be happy. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the, I guess, the phrase that everybody says in the world, well, as long as you're happy, you know, I just want you to to be happy. And that's true, and God actually wants you to be happy, but the world has a false understanding of what brings happiness, and I was fully consumed in that. And I couldn't figure out why I was following the path that should make me happy, and I attained goals that many people in their life never attain, and yet I wasn't happy, and I felt empty inside. How is it that I could have so many friends, and yet I still felt that way? 
it was at that time that God began to speak to my heart, and he began to, um, uh, he began to speak to me through other people. Um, I've shared this in a couple different churches, but uh, there was a sports devotional that somebody had given me, and it actually appealed to me because I like sports, and so I began reading it every day. It was just a little thing, um, and God began to, to, to say, hey, you know, you haven't tried this way, you know? I grew up, and my family was actually Adventist, but they, they left the church by the time I was about 10 years old, and so um, I had at least the understanding that there was a God, and I trusted by faith that, well, partially by faith, that there was a God. I don't believe it was true faith, but I believe that it was a belief. I believed in God. I believed that God was there. I could even say, yeah, oh, God. I didn't even question that God was there. I felt like I knew God was there, but I didn't know God, and I didn't care to know him because of the things that I had seen within the church and within my own family. They weren't representing God in a way that would make me actually want to get to know him, like he was somebody worth uh, getting to know. And so I just went to live, live through life, you know, the way I wanted to, but then God began to speak to me, and, and this is where I believe that he began to say, I want you to cultivate true faith. I didn't realize that then, but I realize that now. I want you to cultivate true faith. Look at Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. What am I talking about over here? Because before I say, well, I thought faith was just believing that God was actually there. But I, I believe that this morning we can see that there's actually a completely different picture from the Bible about what true faith really is. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, it says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. This is the part I'm talking about here. It says, As God has dealt to each one a measure of what? Faith. Every single person in this world that is born, God has has dispersed a measure, a certain amount of faith. Now it's our, uh, it is our joy and our privilege, and it's God's desire that we actually cultivate that faith to grow into something that actually understands what true faith really is. Look at Paul's lesson over here and Paul's experience in Romans chapter 7. It's that faith that God plants in our heart that started to, 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 to change my mind and to actually say, maybe there is something better out there. If that faith was not there, I would never have any desire, we would never have any desire to ever seek God. It would, it would never have any desire to, to, to want something um, better, to find true fulfillment in God. It's only that faith that God has planted there, but he wants us to cultivate that faith. But look at Romans chapter 7. Here we have a chapter that is uh, one of the most highly debatable chapters amongst Christian theologians because um, it has to do with the issue of sanctification and the issue of actually overcoming sin. And so this is a very controversial chapter, but I'm not going to get into it real deeply because I have a feeling that Pastor is probably going to talk on this later in his series. But I just want to look at Paul's experience over here in Romans chapter 7, and starting in verse 13. This is Paul speaking. He says, Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. He's talking about the law. He's contrasting the law and sin, and, and, he's, and he's putting a personality to each one. He's saying the law is a man and sin is a man. Um, and he's saying that we are the bride and we are married to one or the other. And so he says, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly 
sinful. So he's talking about the law, right? And he's saying that the law is making, uh, is making him feel very sinful. So is he saying that the law is bad? And he's saying, no, I'm not saying that the law is bad. I'm saying that the law is actually uh, showing me my true condition. And so this is really good, actually, because why? Because I realized that the one that I was married to before, the same one that I was serving, the serving self and serving sin for 20 years, I was married to sin. And it wasn't until I started actually coming to God that he started revealing to me what those belief system and being married to sin was actually doing to me. Even though I was, even though I was happy for part of the time, uh, ultimately it was leading me to destruction. I think about this, the most clear representation of this is in my diet. I grew up with a diet of eating for breakfast. Um, I shared this with Junior, actually. We'd go snowboarding, me and my friends, and I'd get uh, not a quart, but a half gallon of eggnog going snowboarding and about four donuts. And that was our breakfast. And we'd eat eggnog and donuts. Um, I, even at home, I'd eat ice cream and I'd have about three or four sodas throughout the day. And, you know, it was just whatever I wanted because it tasted good. You know, I just want to eat what tastes good. And uh, that's the way I was raised. And that's all I thought everybody judged what they ate off of. You know, it's just whatever tastes good. And it's like, oh, yes, you need to eat your vegetables and throw those at, in every now and then. But this is just the way I believe. And so, you know, I, I, I would do it. Um, but I didn't understand health. And I didn't understand what was actually happening to my body until later on God revealed to me, you know, what, what nutrition was all about and what the purpose of it was for. And I look back on my life now and I say, oh my goodness, you know, I thought going to, to, to Burger King was real food. You know, it's like I, I would eat, I'd be eating the, the little fun dip or candy, all, you know, red vines, and I'd say, I gotta get some real food. I need to go to McDonald's, you know. <laughs> but this was my understanding. This was my mentality. And I realized that this mentality was actually leading me to destroying my body and I realized how sick that I was. I had pneumonia twice by the time I was like six years old. I had digestion issues my entire life. I went, I had uh, my sister even, she, she, she's been through the same experience. She was sick for I think probably, I don't even know, maybe six or seven years. Constant sore throat uh, every day almost. Um, couldn't figure out what it was and it was because of different food allergies and different uh, things that react to our body and the junk food that we were actually eating. And when the, when, when the health message or when, uh, I don't like to say the health message, it's always a buzzword, but when nutrition, true nutrition, the things that God has actually created to, to give us health in our body was revealed to me, I was actually angry and I was upset because I felt so deceived my whole life. I was like, Man, I, how come nobody told me this before? You know, how come nobody said this is what happens uh, when you eat this way and this is what happens when you eat this way and God has provided this for you to be happy and to be healthy. And this is the illustration that Paul is trying to represent over here. He's saying, do I get mad at that person that showed me the health message and say, oh, thanks. Now I can't be ignorant and eat whatever I want anymore. Or do I say, actually, oh, praise God, you saved my life. I could have, you probably added 10, 20 years onto my life now to be able to bless somebody else. Praise God. But is that what we do sometimes? When, 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 the, when, when, when God shows us who we really are or shows us something that, about ourselves that maybe he wants us, you know, to, 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 to maybe see his love in it, you know, and say, actually, I want you to be healthy. I want you to be happy. I want you to have a good life, to live prosperously, to be joyful. And do we say, oh, oh God, you just, you just ruined it for me, you know? Now I can't go through life and, and, and be just blissfully ignorant. But we do this sometimes. 
But this is what Paul is trying to show over here. He's saying, this law has appeared to me. It's shown me how ugly I really am. But it's also shown me what the man that I was married to, the sin that I was married to before, the path that it was leading me on. And I can see God's law. Which, which law are we talking about over here? Law of God, which is what? Who said it? Love, right? This is the law of love, right? Because did Paul have the Ten Commandments before this? Absolutely. He was, a, he was a Pharisee, right? He kept the law to the letter, right down to the word. So what law is it that really started making a transformation in his life? The law of love, right? And so he says in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual. If there's anything you want to study, <laughs> study this, that the law is spiritual. Um, this will keep us from trying to force it or impose it on anybody else because we cannot do it. God can only put it within our hearts. The law is spiritual. He says, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I, for what I will to do, I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. You start to see this struggle over here. Paul sees the law of love, that it's beautiful, that God's direction is actually good, but he sets into motion a struggle now, a spiritual struggle that um, maybe you have experienced, that I have experienced, and that um, we will continue to experience in seeing that God's way is a way of love and his, his ex loving expression to us. And he says that uh, if you will follow me, you're going to be happier. I realize, I mean, you've got to realize you're going to be happier than, any, uh, than, than in being with this man of sin over here. But he says that, um, verse 17, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So now he's saying that I want to do God's will, but I keep not doing it. I keep doing the things that I've been doing my whole entire life. And I know I've experienced this. In verse 18, he says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. In verse 20, Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Do you see the struggle going on here? You see in Paul's mind, have anybody ever experienced this before? I, I hope that everybody will experience this at some point. I know that sounds mean, but I hope that everybody will experience this at some point. Why? Because of what it actually leads to at the very end of this chapter. In verse 21, it says, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. So he's saying that there's this law that I will to do good, but evil's with me, actually, still, in my body. In verse 22, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Verse 23, But I see another law in my members, doing what? Warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Okay, so Paul has reached this experience now where... We thought that he was just totally converted right when he was walking on the road to Damascus. How many of you believe that? I know, I believe that. That was Paul's conversion experience. I mean, the Bible, even, even, even with the subtitles, will put Paul's conversion experience on the road to Damascus. But conversion does not just happen 
like that. Everybody is seeking for this powerful testimony. I was on my deathbed looking up and a bright light shined out and it said, if you give me one more chance, God, I'll serve you. And he says, I give you one more chance. And then they go and they try to serve God the rest of their life. And it ends up generally and most often than not being a legalistic religion because they feel like uh, if they make one slip up, God's going to say, nope, there's your probation, it's done. And this is an inaccurate picture of God. But the conversion experience from God is actually is not a one-time event. It's a struggle, a daily struggle with sin and recognizing that God's way is better than the way that you've learned in the world and the way that you've practiced before and saying, God, uh, I see your way. Just like Paul says, I see your love. I see it right there, and yet I can't quit doing what I love to do. Or what I, what I've, actually, not what I love to do, but what I hate to do, actually. And at that point, we have to cry out to God in verse 24, like Paul says, and he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we ask that question. When we get to that point, now we are at our weakest point, and we say, God, I cannot do this on my own. No matter how hard I've tried, and I've tried, and I'm saying that for myself, and I know that many people may be saying that for themselves as well, and I've tried, no matter how hard I've tried, I say, God, I cannot do it. And people say, it's so simple. It's so simple. You're saying, you know, it's like I've seen the illustration. Somebody's saying, you know, you're hanging on to a group of keys, and you say, I want to let go of these keys. I want to let go of these keys. Take them from me. And they say, well, you just let go of them. Is it that easy? <sighs> wow, if it is, somebody tell me your secret. Because it's not that easy. And God made it. God didn't make it, but this is the nature of sin, that it's not that easy. But God has put everything into the world that we need in order to help us to overcome. But it's not in us. That's where we have to get to. It is not in us. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, he says, I thank God. Why? Through who? Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the only place that we will find victory in anything. This is the only place that we will find acceptance, love, that will draw us to Jesus. But then once we start on that walk, we're going to realize there's a lot of battles that are ahead of us, actually. And we have to hang on to Jesus every moment. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. How is it that we, what, what is it that Paul actually encountered in his experience over here? Because the very first thing that we have to see is God's love, and Paul experienced that. But greater than that, when we start to enter into the Christian walk, God's love, that wasn't the greatest picture that you saw when you first had your conversion experience. That actually wasn't the greatest picture that you saw of God. The greatest picture that you're going to see of God is going to continue to grow and grow, and it's going to get greater and greater because you realize that you cannot overcome the struggles that you've been trying to overcome for years. No matter how much you deceive yourself, no matter how much you try to put up walls and you try to separate yourself from the people who are influencing you to do bad things, that's not overcoming sin, unfortunately. Overcoming sin is actually being able to stare sin in the face and saying, Jesus is actually right here, and he's the only one working in me to overcome this. It's not just separating ourselves from it. This is why God says, I want you to be in the world, but not of the world. We're not supposed to live up in mountains by ourselves like monks. 
He wants us to influence the world by looking to him and being able to stay connected to him and overcome in any situation that we're actually in. Why are we able to do that? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And this is here where the sermon is actually entitled. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Here we have right after Adam and Eve actually sin. And when they sin, what, what is it that ultimately caused them to sin? What was it? Who, who can tell me what, what caused them to sin? What were they tempted by? Or who were they tempted by? The serpent? That's right, the devil. And who, what was he telling them? What was he telling Eve? That you'd be smarter, right? So he was deceiving, right? And God was keeping something from you, right? He was trying to get them to believe him rather than God, right? So here, they're married to God right now. And they're, te- they're, they're, they're being tempted with uh, an affair with somebody else. And to believe them that they're, this, they're, his way is actually better than God's way. And they obeyed and they listened. And they broke that connection, that marriage covenant that they actually had with God. And now they were in complete harmony with Satan. If God had not intervened, if God did not step in and do something, man would have been completely aligned with Satan and at peace with Satan. This is why Jesus says there's two types of peace in this world. He says, not as the world do I give, yeah, not as the world gives do I give unto you, right? And so there's two kinds of peace. There's a a worldly peace where you're at peace with Satan, right? And you're doing his will, but you're in bondage. You're a slave to him, and you can do nothing but that. And so at this point, Adam and Eve were a slave to Satan. They were in complete harmony with him, but God does something. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, actually at the beginning of verse 14, it says, So the Lord God said, right? He spoke his word to the serpent, and he said, he spoke it actually into the world in verse 15. Jump down to 15. He says, And I will put, what? Enmity. What does enmity mean? What is it? Hatred, right? It means hatred. Enmity, that word is used eight times in the Bible. This is the only time it is a good thing. Every other time it's talking about enmity between one another, and that's actually not good. Between people is not good. We don't want hatred, we want love between one another. But God says, I will put, because of the union that you have created between you and the devil, I am going to intervene with divine power, with supernatural power that is actually going to split up that union, and I'm actually going to put enmity right there between you. Who is it that put it there? God put it there. Interesting. What does this enmity do for us? Notice what it says. It says, I'm going to be, where am I going to put it? It says, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, there's many different um, meanings that we can draw from this, actually, but it's talking about Satan's seed and his offspring, right? Those who are serving him. And this is why it says the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world, these kinds of things, right? Because people just don't get it. When you have a connection with God and they are connected with Satan, you just don't click. You can't understand each other, actually. But it says between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And it also means between Christ and between Satan, right? The great controversy spelled out here in one verse. But it's interesting. It says between your seed, talking about the devil's seed, um, who is or what is the devil the father of? Ooh, lies. John chapter 8, Jesus says, you are of your father the devil, talking to the Pharisees. So he's a father of the Pharisaical mentality, which is human nature, 
which is self-righteousness, and they were already in the church, right? So Satan's seed, his offspring, was, was the pharisaical mentality of self-righteousness, trusting only in themselves and looking to other people and, and just for selfish gain, um, and deceive, deceitful as well, right? Because they were in the church trying to pose themselves as God, and yet, <laughs> and yet they were acting as Satan. And so this is, one, this is one thing he was a father of, but he was also the father of lies. Now what in this world does the devil lie about? What kind of lies has he put in this world that he wants us to believe? What are his lies directed towards? Is he just saying, I, I mean, is his lies just uh, um, steal a candy bar and you'll be happy? I mean, oh, very good. God's character. How do we know that? Because the opposite of lies is the truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in Hebrews 1, chapter, or 1, chapter 1, verse 2, Jesus was the express image of God's glory, right? God came to reveal the glory of God, which God's glory is his character of love and goodness and grace and mercy, right? So if Jesus was coming to bring that truth and that light to the entire world, it was because it was filled with darkness from Satan, which was lies that were spread into the world about the character of God. And what were those lies? It was the same mentality that the Pharisees had, that God only goes by the book like this. He just sits up there like a judge and says, uh, yes, you came, you broke the law, you're guilty, you're condemned. Yes, you, you, you didn't keep this, you didn't follow every single one of my, con my commands, you're condemned, right? And I have all these laws written out on this big tablet and all these laws on this scroll, and if you don't meet up to them, you're either stoned or you're put out of the camp or you're this or you're that. And that's the way the Pharisees put God up to be, right? But Jesus had to come and show us a, a different picture of God, actually. And why are we able to even see that picture? Because God's word, it put enmity right there between us and the lies that the devil actually has in the world. You see, it's between Satan's seed, the lies that he spread in the world, and between the, 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 the um, God's seed, which was Christ. And so this is the only thing that has allowed me to be able to even have that, that, that inclination that maybe there's something better out there, you know, that, 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 that allows me to understand once I see the love of God and I want to do what's good, to, to um, be able to at least distinguish between, wow, this is my old mentality of sin where I was married to, but I want to do God's will. This is that enmity being felt now. First, we actually, it's what um, motivates us to actually come to God. And then it's we actually feel it actually happening in our bodies. That's why Paul said, I'm warring against myself. But friends, this is put there by God. And God only gives us the things which are good for us. Which is why I say, if you haven't experienced this, I pray that you do. Why? Because this word of God... Which faith is what? The definition of faith is depending on the word of God to do what the word says, right? So this here is a gift of faith to you and me. That same gift that, that God has given to each and every person that he has planted in each person. He plants enmity and he can, he's able to continue planting this within us, each one of us. But this gift of faith allows us to be able to, to um, experience this struggle so that we realize that we can't do it on our own and we have to turn to Jesus. Does that make sense? And we have to surrender all completely. I know that sounds elementary, um, but when you experience it, it starts to take on a whole different meaning, actually. Now, 
I said earlier that faith, what is it that, that, that allows us to cultivate this faith? Because actually turn to Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20. Turn to Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20. I don't want to keep us too long, but I just really want to share these, these things that I feel like God has, has, has shown me. Look at Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20. Jesus, talking about faith, he gives a parable. He said, so Jesus said to them, because of your, what? Unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you, right? So we know that this enmity is a gift of faith. We know that faith is in each and every one of us. Um, And Jesus says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, a little tiny seed, right? It says that you will be able to move mountains. And we wonder, why is it that we cannot move mountains? I have faith. Why can I not do this? Well, I say, why did he say faith is as a mustard seed? I believe he was making a reference. Look at Matthew chapter 13. I believe he was drawing the attention of the disciples back to something he had actually said before. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 31 Notice what Jesus says about a mustard seed. He says, another parable he put forth to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a what? A mustard seed. Why? Which a man took and sowed it in his field, right? God is the sower. He sowed that that faith, right, into our hearts. So a man took and he sowed this mustard seed-sized faith into his field, right? Which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is what? When it is grown... It, will, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest its branches. You see, Jesus was trying to say that if you have faith that grows, not just a faith that is just like a mustard seed, but if you have faith that grows, you will be able to move mountains. Amen? And this is a seed that will grow bigger this faith will grow bigger than any of its kind that has ever been there. If you continue to allow the faith to grow, this is why Jesus says, greater things than these you will do. But you have to have your faith grow. Okay, now this brings us to what is the most important part about growing our faith. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. You see, I used to have this mentality, I used to have this understanding that faith was believing in God. Just, just believing in God, that he's there, right? And then I had this other mentality that says, no, 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 faith is not just faith in believing it's God. It's actually faith that, that you believe in God so much that you'll just do everything that he says. And I say, oh, okay, so I just try to do everything that I think that he says to me, right? And, and then I get to this point where I'm just so frustrated because I'm not doing everything that he says, and so I either put it out of my mind, and I try to look for other things that God wants me to do. Maybe I'm not doing enough. Or I actually say, forget it. I don't need this faith stuff anymore because it's all it's doing is driving me nuts. Because that's a horrible existence if you're stuck where Paul was stuck for the rest of your life, actually. And you never have victory in any part of your life. It's, it's a very, uh, not a very fun time to be in. But when we understand what true faith is, we realize that it's not just uh, faith. And it's not faith and works, but it's actually something else over here. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Now faith, we've heard this so many times, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith is two things in here. What is it, two things? 
in this verse? It's substance and evidence, right? What is substance? Substance is something you can, you can handle, right? Something you can touch. And then what is evidence? Proof. And not only proof, but proof that testifies, right? Proof that testifies of something. Either accusing or, or um, uh, dismissing somebody, right? Excusing, either excusing or accusing. And so we see this is uh, the substance, faith is the substance, and it's the proof, it's the evidence. Of your five senses, what do you think is the most important sense? Which one would you, would you not, uh, not want to lose, I guess? What do you feel like the most important sense is? Out of taste, touch, sight, or smell, or hearing is what? What do you think? Some of you say sight. I don't think there's actually one set answer. How many agree with sight? How many agree? Is there something else? Let me hear something else. <laughs> taste. How many agree with taste? <laughs> I think I agree with that one too. Hearing. Some say hearing. Anybody else? You be honest. Hearing. No? Okay, I'm going to disagree with everybody then. Because I believe that touch is actually, actually the most important of the five senses. Why? I mean, if you can't taste, some people can't taste. It's not a big deal. If you can't smell, you can't taste. So that's probably above taste, right? Um, if you can't hear, you can still see, right? You can still um, um, experience things, good things in this world, right? You can still experience love. If you can't see, many people count this as the most important sense because it's, it, it's so, you know, it's so um, crucial to be able to get around and functioning in daily life. But if you can't see, can you still experience love? Yeah. Very much so. But if you can't touch, if you can't feel somebody next to you, if you can't feel somebody's loving arm on your shoulder, even though you can see them, you may not even believe that it's actually there, right? If you can't feel it. This is why I believe faith is the substance and the evidence. It's something that you can handle, something that you can feel. True faith, I believe others will not just have to see it in you. They will feel it. They will say, wow, this person is connected with God, right? Now, depending, this is where the key is, depending on what God we see, what God we're having faith in, is going to determine what kind of feelings are going to be put in that other person. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. But without faith, this is why God says this, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. So this is what faith consists of. He says we must believe that he is. He is what? That he is Jesus was God on earth. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, which in Jesus there was no condemnation, which in Jesus was deaf to our, our ignorant words, was blind to our mistakes, right? He overlooked everything and he saw the person inside that he put there, the person of faith, of God who was in there, and only what you could be in him, not anything that you were actually doing. He saw past all of that. And so we have to believe that he is, talking about God the Father, that he is as Jesus showed him. That he is love, that he is mercy, that he is grace, that he is good. Amen? Amen. 
This is what we have to go. When we come to God, we must believe that he is this. Why? Because this is the faith that we're going to show. This is the faith that people are going to feel. They're going to see that, wow, you serve a loving God. Why? Because you don't condemn me. You don't make fun of me when everybody else is making fun of me. You come and you want to make friends with me when everybody else has shunned me. This is the kind of faith that God wants us to have. And it says that, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And I think this is the one thing that's been the hardest for me in my entire life to understand. And I feel like God is just starting to get me to understand this because true faith comes to God with his promises saying, God, I am not worthy, but you, you, I am not worthy. Oh, sorry. (laughs) But, uh, um, but you have promised in your word that despite my lack of worthiness and despite my actions that I actually uh, do, you know, the things you asked me to do, despite all those things, you still hear my prayer. Because I am repentant, Lord, because I, I truly desire, as Paul said, I see that. I hate this other life that I've lived, and I see your path, and I want to walk it, but I'm having such a hard time, and the Satan is just beating me up here. But Lord, I really, you see my heart. And you've put in your promises that you will answer me. And he will. This is why we have to believe that he is a rewarder. We have to have faith that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and say we're honest in heart. And that's what it really comes down to. The bottom line is that we're truly honest in heart. And now when I realize this, I realize I didn't have any understanding of faith whatsoever. But in order for us to cultivate this faith, we have to see God for who he really is. And that's why you keep hearing sermons maybe about the character of God. Because this is what it truly takes to be able to grow. We can't grow that mustard seed of faith that's within our heart. There's nothing that we can do on our own. It's by beholding Jesus, beholding the Lamb of God, that we are changed. You see, when we look at the cross, when we look at the story of the gospel, this is what happened to me. Um... Sorry, I lost my place here. When we look at the cross, we read these stories about um, Jesus struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then we read the stories about how uh, the Romans, I mean, how, uh, um, uh, how the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, when he was standing before the council, how they spit in his face, how they slapped him, they hit him in the face, and they said, prophesy, who hit you, Right? We read these stories and we start to, ooh, we feel a little righteous indignation, right? Like, ooh, I'd like to give it to them too, right? And we feel like, oh, man, poor Jesus, you know? Um, uh, And we get angry a little bit. And then we read about how the Roman soldiers, how they put the crown of thorns on our Savior, our God's head. And then they pushed it in just to kind of add insult to injury already. And they started mocking him and saying, here is the king of the Jews, right? And we start, to, you know, we start to get a little bit more built up, a little bit more angry. And then we see Jesus hanging on the cross and the people uh, shouting and, and cursing and making fun of him and, and doing anything to degrade him. And we see our Savior hanging on a tree. And by this time, our blood is just boiling. It's just like, how dare they do this? And now we realize, okay, our sin put him, our sin too, Put him on the tree. And this is the message that you hear. Now, what does that make you do? It makes you hate sin, right? And you say, oh, I hate this sin that I have in me. I just want to get rid of it, right? I'm so angry. I'm going to go do whatever I can do to get rid of this sin. Ooh, 
This is a very real experience for me. This has been my experience with Jesus. I say, Jesus, I hate this sin. I'm going to do whatever I can do to get rid of it. Why? Because how dare they do those things to you? But who are we beholding? We're beholding ourselves. When we're beholding in each of those accounts, we're beholding the Jews, the self-righteous Jews. We're beholding the Roman soldiers. We're beholding the Sanhedrin. Who are we supposed to behold? Jesus. Now, let's play this cross of Calvary in a different light and look at Jesus. And we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Peter cuts off the, the accuser's ear. And Jesus says, he puts it back on, he restores him. He says, even though he is persecuting me, I'm actually going to restore him. He gets to the Sanhedrin, and they punch him in the face, and they spit on him, and they say, speak. And he sits there looking at them with compassion, saying, if you only knew who I was, and forgiveness in his eyes and in his voice. And all of a sudden, we're like, Jesus, give it to him, please. And he says, no, that's not who I am. He say, why? <laughs> and then we see him standing before Pilate, and he tells him that you couldn't have any authority if it wasn't for me, actually. I actually hold all the power in heaven. You couldn't do anything if it wasn't for me. And yet, I'm only going to speak words of life to you. I'm only going to give you um, the things that will help you to grow. I'm only going to give you the things that will build you up. And then we get on the cross of Calvary, and we see the people spitting on him, and we're beholding Jesus. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus looking into the heart of each and every person, saying, despite that sin, despite those mistakes that you've made, despite that all-out rebellion, I still love you, and I still forgive you. And that is the only thing that will help us to grow and that will make us grow. Where is our focus? No longer does our heart boil with this self-righteous, righteous indignation, but actually a different emotion starts to come out. And we realize that our hearts begin to soften. Our eyes may even fill up with tears as we realize our helplessness and how vain and useless our own efforts to put sin really are. We begin to hear the voice of God speaking to our hearts as he speaks in a soft voice, telling us of his love, and even in our sin, saying, all I'm asking you to do is keep your eyes on me, and I will take care of the rest. How many of you, as we go our separate ways, want to keep your eyes on Jesus and want to say, Lord, maybe I've had a picture of you that has been totally distorted. Maybe I've been trying to do it on my own. I've been trying to put... Uh, I've been trying to put enmity myself, but I want to allow you to put that enmity in me because it's not a hatred that's going to look at anybody else with condemnation, but it's a, it's, a, it's a hatred for sin that is going to soften our hearts because it's going to point us to Jesus and realize there is no condemnation in Jesus. And it's going to be allowing me to, 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 to speak to somebody else's heart with Jesus' heart. How many of you want to say that this morning? I know that is my prayer, and as we go our separate ways, I pray that it will continue to be revealed to each one of us, and I'm excited to be able to listen to the sermons um, online and any other pictures that are going to be put up there by Jordan online. Um, I appreciate that ministry, and I'm excited to see what God is going to do in each one of our lives because this is not our home. I just want to remind you of that. This is not our home, and we will meet in our home in heaven. Amen? Amen. So this morning, as we sing our closing song, Number 554, oh, let me walk with thee. I pray that this would be the prayer of our heart, Lord, that we would truly walk with you.
and that you would put the enmity within us and not ourselves.